0: that feeling of the I wish I knew then what I know now I would have made a different choice right having the option to quit is what allows you to make that different choice when you learn that new information but the messaging that we get around grit says oh ignore that just keep going the thing that grit is so good for is getting you to stick to hard stuff we have this kind of shorthand like goals are good finish lines are good run toward the finish line if you don't get there you fail.
1: Education. <laughs> Welcome to In Piazza again today. This is Jeannie Allen, and I'm so pleased to have um, a pretty amazing person with me, Annie Duke, a world-famous poker player, co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, and someone who does a lot of thinking and a lot of counseling, um, how we make good decisions. And so, Annie, you've got a fascinating background, which uh, our listeners have heard a little bit about so far, but let's just jump in right now okay. uh, about your latest book and Um, And why you recommend that kind of the antithesis of grit, almost like how the power of quitting is actually super valuable for success.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I think that certainly in this country, we really fetishize grit, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, just stick to things and and that's a sign of character to the point where there's there's this woman, Siobhan O'Keefe, who like I'm super fascinated by who was running the um, 2019 marathon in London, the London marathon mm-hmm. and somewhere around mile four, like her legs started to really hurt. And then on mile eight, her fibula bone snapped, Le- right? <clears throat> she broke her leg. Okay, so here's the thing, completely against medical advice. She continued running and finished the race. Now, let's just be honest with each other. You kind of admire her, right, <laughs> right? You're like, is it? you're kind of like, ooh, I wish I had that kind of grit or could i do it like could i actually keep going right so i mean this really shows you that like grit are the heroes of the story because you shouldn't run the 18.2 miles on a broken leg for all sorts of reasons you know if if i assume that your goal is to run lots of marathons in your life then this actually puts in grave danger your ability to do that in the future you're like risking a compound fracture like really permanent injury to your body so let's just be objective here she should quit but we kind of are like, ooh, when she keeps going. This is the issue, right? Is that we we really kind of view quitting as either something we don't even notice or as a failure, right? Whereas grit, the people who stick it out are the heroes. But the problem is, there's just a whole bunch of stuff that you shouldn't stick out. Like if you break, you know, mm-hmm. if you break your leg in the middle of a race, you get a concussion in the middle of a football game, or if you're in a in a job where your boss is toxic. I mean, this happens in public policy all the time. You have a public works project that is going nowhere, but you Mm -hmm. continue to spend money on it, trying to complete it. Or, you know, you create a policy that's supposed to achieve a particular goal. And as you observe what the unintended consequences of that policy are, you still stubbornly stick to it because that's kind of the way that we're wired. And we need to start understanding that grit is indeed very good in order to be successful, you will have had to stick to whatever it is that you're trying to succeed at. And it is a good thing, but that it's not all good under all circumstances. And sometimes quitting is the much more important skill in those circumstances.
1: So is there a fundamental difference between grit and persistence? No. Is that part of what made you start writing about this issue?
0: Well, I think I was just frustrated, you know. I mean, I was just frustrated at this idea that you're supposed to stick to things at all costs. Because it's not true. Whenever you decide to do something, whenever you start something, you know very little in comparison to all there is to be known, and after you start it, you're going to learn new stuff. But like, I mean, we all have that feeling of I wish I knew then what I know now, I would have made a different choice, right? And the thing is that having the option to quit is a lo- what allows you to make that different choice when you learn that new information. But the messaging that we get around grit says, Oh, ignore that. Just keep going with grit. The thing that grit is so good for is getting you to stick to hard stuff because in the end, anything really worth achieving is going to have hard moments, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to go through the down periods, the dips, the, you know, feeling like this is too much Mm -hmm. and you, you know, and you have to stick to it. Anybody who's you know, gotten all the way through college, for example, or gotten all the way through high school, right? Like it takes a lot of grit to be able to do that because you're going to come up against a teacher that you hate or a class that just isn't in your wheelhouse Mm -hmm. where it's just really hard, right? And you have, you know, grit is really good for getting you to stick to that stuff. So great. Great. But the thing is that if it's not when you do come across something that isn't worthwhile that you shouldn't be continuing to do, you have to figure out how to be able to abandon it. It's an incredibly important skill for success. So we think that grit is the thing that gets you to be successful. It's really not. It's being gritty about the things that are worthwhile. That is what gets you to be successful. Quitting all the other stuff is a necessary component as necessary, if not more to grit for success because you have to find the right thing to stick to, which means you have to sample a whole bunch of stuff and quit most of it to focus on the thing that you're making a bet on, right? You're guessing is the right thing to stick to. And then when you find out information that tells you maybe it's not, you have to switch fast to get over to something that is good to stick to. And so this is something that I really try to point out to people. We think that that quitting things is gonna stop our progress or slow it down. Actually, If you quit something that isn't going well, it will speed up your progress because it will stop you from doing something where you're just like running into brick walls, not actually accomplishing what it is that you want to accomplish. And free your time up to go do something that will allow you to accomplish it. So then when you quit fast, that actually gets you to where you want to go faster.
1: Right. You know, so your book uh, for our listeners, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away helps instruct people on how to get there. I'm thinking as you're talking, Annie, about something that I'm always criticized for. And I wanna take some solace in what you're saying, but I also wanna level set, it's not about me right now. But I change my mind a lot. Like I will change and switch gears a lot. If something is not moving in the right direction, I go, wait, wait, this is why this is not, like it's so hard to figure out, let's move. And so I've had people over time professionally say, oh, well, you know, you change your mind. Yeah, because I want to move in a direction that felt like it was more productive than this direction. I met a dear friend of ours, Carl Schramm, wrote a book called Burn the Business Plan. I was kind of raised professionally that you need a business plan, a strategic plan, you stick to the business plan. Carl says, as a business professor, sometimes if you stick to the goals and they're not going in the right direction, but like what I just said about some of my experiences and what he said is so counterintuitive To a person walking into business who's told, this is what you do when you walk in the door and you stick to it no matter what. So how do we untrain this? Let's even start in our education system, right? Because isn't that our traditional education systems kind of says to people constantly, stay on this course. And it's always this course. And don't veer from it. Otherwise, you're not going to reach your goals. It sounds like maybe it's kind of BS, right?
0: Yeah, so burn the business plan. Having a business plan is like setting a goal to run a marathon. Because contained in a business plan are particular finish lines that you're expecting to reach. And the problem with finish lines is they're motivating, right? Like having a business plan is motivating in the sense that, or having goals in general is motivating in the sense that it gives you a clear something to run toward, right? Like, okay, this is what I'm trying to achieve. And there, you set all of these finish lines, all of these goals that you're, all of these metrics, right, that are gonna, you're gonna measure your success against, kind of like the finish line of a marathon. It tells you where you're heading, right? The summit of Everest. It tells you where you're heading. So, so that is motivating. The problem is that um, the goal itself, or the original business plan itself, what what's contained within becomes the object. In other words, you're trying to accomplish something. Mm-hmm. And when you write a business plan, that is your best guess of the appropriate way, like the best way to accomplish that, the kinds of things that would allow you to, to, that would show that you were actually being successful. So these are the things that you want to head toward, but facts on the ground change. And when the business plan itself becomes the object, just executing that thing or getting to the finish line of the marathon, what happens is that as long as you're short of that, right? When I'm at 16 miles, I am failing. Mm -hmm. And what we have to realize is like, no, because whether it's executing on a business plan and then figuring out that things aren't working out, uh, you've made progress along the way. You like learned a whole bunch of stuff. You've run 16 miles more than zero. Cognitively, we don't think about it that way. We think about it as being short because that becomes the goal and we grade that pass fail. So if you don't execute on your business plan, you failed no matter no matter whether it was correct to stick to it or not then we won't we won't stop so right. so that's the problem so um and this is true like on a larger scale when it when it comes to uh you know the the way that we think about these things in general as you pointed out like in terms of the education system we have this kind of shorthand like goals are good finish lines are good run toward the finish line if you don't get there you fail in the business setting i think it's partly because of we're we're just biased Toward that type of thinking, but also because it's a shortcut. Mm-hmm. It's easier to manage people toward a goal and then you just manage to the outcome, right? Did you hit the target or not? Right. It's it's a simplifier. Right. Rather than really digging into process, was it the correct goal? How are you thinking about that? Were you updating your cost benefit analysis? So on and so forth. Because it is, as you point out for yourself, it's hard to distinguish between did you quit because you're like, you know, lazy or weak willed or You give up too soon or did you quit because it was appropriate? That's complicated. So instead we say, just stick to things with kids, because we recognize that they don't necessarily have the experience of a long time horizon like adults do, and their brains are not fully formed. So they're much more likely to make impulsive decisions. Then we try to really instill this, you know, stick to things like grit is really good. Um, I think to counterbalance some of their impulsivity to try to give them some of the adult view on a longer time horizon, right? So, okay, that's okay. I, I you know, I mean, certainly Angela Duckworth would say this, this creates great outcomes. I don't argue with her. I think her book is great. I have no quibble with her. I, I think that people should go read her and it's important. The problem is when t- 30 year olds are doing that too, mm-hmm. because 30 year olds don't have the same issues as someone who's 10. A 10 year old has a bad day on the field and they wanna quit totally. But a a 30 year old is in a job that isn't going well with a, you know, a coworker that that's toxic and they're sticking to it because they think that shows character, Mm -hmm. like it's opposite problems. And so we don't want to carry those lessons all the way through, because I think in general, people are very gritty once they, once they reach a certain point in their life. And in fact, we then want to sort of start to give them the reverse message that walking away is fine. It's Okay. Yeah. How,
1: if at all, did playing poker influence your thinking? I know that, uh, of course, you've you've been doing a number of things for so long, and you've been in the psychology world, and um. But did poker and playing poker have anything to do with how you think about approaches?
0: So yeah, so so if for anybody who studied game theory, uh, loss cutting is a very big part of it. So game theory in general is it's a, it's just a framework for thinking about decision-making. It was uh, the framework for it was first brought forward by um, John von Neumann and Oscar Morgenstern in a book called the theory of games and essentially decision-making under uncertainty usually with, with more than, you know, with more than one person. So it's, it's about like, how do we make decisions among multiple actors under uncertainty? So loss cutting becomes a very big part of this because like every decision whether it's a decision to start something or whether it's a decision to stop something you're going to be uncertain when you when you make it at least if you do it at the right time so just as when you start something uh, you don't know very much like if you hire someone what do you really know about the person right but then ha- people always wait too long to fire them right like long 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 after oh, yeah. they ought to Right. Even though when they hired them, they were like, I don't really know very much. So as soon as I find some stuff out, I should probably act on it. Once we started something, we sort of get stuck. And part of the reason for that is that the decision to stop is also made under uncertainty. Mm. In other words, if you keep going, there's always some chance that you can turn it around, that you can make it work, that you won't have to exit having failed. Right. So, 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 uh, and, and what you don't want to end up doing is getting into a situation where um, you butt up against shore failure, right? So for most of us, the only, the only time that we're really willing to quit is when we don't have a choice anymore. When it's so obvious that the situation we're in is intolerable or our star- startup is out of money or in poker, the cards have already turned over and you've lost the hand hmm. or you've lost all your money in the game then we know we don't have a choice. We don't, we, we have to quit. And so we're, we sort of take the uncertainty out of it, but loss cutting, you know, being a good loss cutter is doing that beforehand. It's doing that before you have no money left. Doing that before the situation is intolerable. So in poker, you have this particular option that's available to you, which is folding. I can fold my hand. It's a huge skill element of the game. If you look at less skillful games like Baccarat, you don't have an option to fold. It's a big deal not to have that option. So what I can do as a player is say, I don't think this hand is worth continuing with. And then I can toss it. So uh, that, this is actually, to be quite honest, the most important skill element of the game. It I think it's the thing that most clearly distinguishes expert players from amateurs.
1: Knowing it, when to fold them as the song says. Well, it's
0: not just knowing when to fold, it's folding way more than everybody else. See that that's the thing that people don't understand is amateur poker players play in a game like Texas Holdem and like a nine-handed game. They'll they'll start when they get those two cards to start, they'll continue on with over 50% of those two cards starting combinations. A professional player 15 to 25% of the time do they continue. So they're folding more than half, more, more than twice as often as an amateur. Because what they understand is that it's not about the what ifs and maybe this hand can win. And people say like, things like any two cards can win. It's does this hand have enough of a chance going forward to make it worth my while? But notice that means that I'm folding when I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Because any two cards, it's true, any two cards at the beginning have a chance of winning, but that's not really the question. It's does it have enough of a chance of winning to continue? So I'm always going to fold when there's still some chance that I could win, right? Now, obviously, sometimes you sort of butt up against certainty, but poker players are trying not to butt up against that certainty. So uh, they're just better at letting go of their hands. And because that was such an important skill element in poker, I mean, I certainly have thought about that in general, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Right. And how it applies to to real, real, real life um, decisions. So I'd love to get into how you can start a poker, but I have to go to the Alliance for Decision Education because it's an organization that since um, you co-founded it with Eric Brooks has fascinated me because at first I thought when I heard about it years ago, like Alliance for Decision Education, how do you create an organization and help people make decisions? What, like, how does that happen? And it was kind of very counterintuitive to me. And then the more I watched the programs and the stuff you were doing, I thought, wow, this, this makes a lot of sense. So oh, yeah, it really does. So, so tell us about where you are now, why that was started. Was this, was this sort of the, again, the epitome of how you you structure some training around precisely what we're talking about so that students and, and yeah. people who can't do this by themselves have some support.
0: Okay, so let me ask you something, Jeannie. Did you enjoy trigonometry? Did you use it for anything ever in your whole life? Was there any point in you taking it in like ninth or 10th grade? There was a theory that if you taught somebody to to tackle really difficult mathematical problems that it would teach them how to think. But I think it it was 1906 that was disproved. Mm -hmm. But again, to this idea of people don't quit things, like once it's sort of there and this idea exists, it's really hard for people to abandon it even in the face of evidence that you should. Okay, so look, if you can teach individuals to make better decisions, their lives will be better. And if their lives are better, society will be better. That's just the connection right there. Create a better society, then arm individuals with the ability to make better decisions. That is what we feel like. The educational system as it sits, which has not really changed very much, as you know, from back in 1906, mm-hmm. before then, is ill-equipped to teach kids to make better decisions. And in fact, in a large part is moving away from allowing individual decisions to be made by either the students or the teachers. So you're teaching people sort of like facts, Mm -hmm. but I can go look those up. You're not teaching people when you encounter information, how do you think about it? How do you feel like, how do you figure out what's true? How do you figure out what your own values are? Your own goals are? How do you actually think about how you might achieve those? How do you, how do you, what are your habits? which is part of Mm decision-making, right? Like, how do you become open-minded to other points of view? So on and so forth. Like these things, these are the things we really want to be teaching kids. So in the same way that there was a movement formed around social-emotional learning that, you know, then starts to appear in schools, it took 25 years for them to get this into the schools. But now we sort of see it everywhere we feel that we should be saying, why are we teaching what, like, if you want to know what to shove out of the way in order to teach kids to make better decisions, shove trigonometry out of the way. If they, if they want to become an engineer, they can learn trigonometry later. It's that it's a very particular form of math that's for very particular things. Addition. That's a different story. We should teach everybody addition. You need that. So what we're trying to do is get decision education, which is the kind of stuff that I think about a lot, right? How do you think about what's true, how do you figure out what you would do about it once you sort of gather that information, how are you open-minded to other points of view, how do you think about your own habits, so on and so forth. All of this stuff that has become so popular in kind of adult literature, right, like um Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, for example, who's on our advisory board, Um, adults are really into it. Why aren't we teaching it to kindergartners?
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: we're trying to get it into every K through 12 classroom. So it's a moonshot, like we know it. As you know, the educational system, very hard to turn that ship anywhere, left, right, whatever. They don't quit what they're already doing. It's really hard to get them to do that. But there have been a couple of examples of this of this type of um, you know movement being created and being successful. One would be STEM mm-hmm. and the other is social emotional learning. And when you look at those, there was an organization that had a very long time horizon, which we do, saying, here's what we're trying to accomplish. We're gonna create push and pull. We're going to uh, accelerate uh, other nonprofits or for-profits that are uh, in the same space as us. So, so as an example, uh, if there's a nonprofit working on financial literacy, that would be in our zone. Mm-hmm. We're going to try to create common language around this and common cause. We're going to try to start to get the, the, te- uh, to the teachers to demand this. We're going to try to get parents to demand it. We're going to pull on policy levers and, you know, start start really trying to get this into every classroom in the country. So yeah, I mean, as you can no, tell, it's I'm great. passionate about no, this.
1: No, it's fantastic. Uh, and I have financial literacy group for you, uh, more than one, by the way. And, you know, what we've seen in our work, even the recent um, things that we're doing around the prize, the OS Prize that we're managing, yeah. is the number of organizations, the innovators who are saying students need agency, we're gonna put them in positions to be able to help make decisions about where they go next, we're going to give them hands-on experiences. They can decide, is it this path? Is it that path? Which is, again, as you know, as we talked about, so counterintuitive of what we're doing out there. I think the for me, when you say like we should be doing in kindergarten, it, it, it's even you know, coming off the heels a day after uh, Columbus Day was supposed to happen in every city. Of course, as an Italian-American, I have a bone to pick with anyone who says there shouldn't be, and I fight with my friends and professions all the time. Here's what I wanna say though, don't make me demand it. How about ask the question, what did he do well? What didn't he do well? Should we know about him? Part of my problem with debate about any particular holiday or any particular issue is how little we've actually trained people. And I think this is particularly true around adults. We at least could save kids maybe, to ask the question, what do we know? Where can we find the information? How do we make that decision ourselves? rather than reading something that's third or fourth hand that may not have facts or not. There are negatives and positives in everything. And so I wonder if even starting with, um, again, a core, a core of here is here is something we want people to learn about, but we want you to learn about it by asking those questions and making conclusions is a completely well, different way.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I look, at it, I think here's part of the problem is I think everybody kind of shared the intuition that once you could Google anything, like life would be solved. (laughs) In in the sense that exactly the questions, like if you're trying to develop an opinion on whether, whether you believe it's, you know, you should say indigenous people's day, whether you think the holiday should be celebrated, so on and so forth, uh, that I can go look up all the information I need in order to form an opinion for myself the problem is that that intuition is just wrong for the reason that there's so much information available to us now so much that there's no way for a single person to be able to process all of it so we we just really it's like it's in some ways like it's like too much of a good thing right like and i'm not i'm not suggesting we shut down the internet and don't let people go of course not. you know yeah. find their own facts but um but I'm saying, like, we have to recognize that there's a downside to it, which is people start to rely on proxies more.
1: So, Oh, so, right my partner who uh, has been on this show with me occasionally as a co-host calls it infobesity. It is, yeah. is enormous. And, and talk about the stress on people, particularly young people.
0: Like, Yeah, I mean, it's just it's a, it's a lot sources. of process. So, yeah. so then what happens you, is you start to use proxies and then... Then when you start to use proxies, not only are you using a proxy to tell you what's true and not, and look, I can take any data set and I can show you, I can frame it in a way that will support whatever opinion you want it to support. It's just true. Mm -hmm. So um, you have to really be very fluent in order to be able to understand what that stuff means. So now you have someone who tells you, well, here would be an example. They'll say, you know, oh, in this area, 80% of the people who got vaccinated, who who died from COVID were vaccinated. Okay. So that sounds really scary, right? Mm -hmm. Like, okay. So obviously it would be coming from, from a particular tribe that would be anti-vax. They're telling you 80% of people in this area who who died from COVID um, had been vaccinated. And of course you're going to say, well, then I shouldn't be vaccinated, except that you would have to then go look deeper. And this is part of the things that we're trying to say to people is you have to know what the right questions to ask are, because the question that I would ask is, well, but how many people in the area were vaccinated compared to not vaccinated? So imagine that 99 out of 100 people in the area were vaccinated. So 99% of people were vaccinated, but 80% of the people who died were vaccinated. That actually sounds pretty good for vaccinations now, right? Mm-hmm. So, because what you understand is, no, if it were like useless, ninety-nine percent of the people who died would have been vaccinated, right? So I would need to know that, and then you would see something even worse where they just say six thousand people died of, you know, uh, six thousand people who were vaccinated died. Mm -hmm. Well, now that's really useless to me because I don't. Okay, but how many unvaccinated people died? How many universe?
1: Exactly. Right. What's
0: the percentage of people? So this is kind of the problem. So now you have got proxies who are who are sort of telling you how to think about stuff, they're giving you like piecemeal facts that kind of support their um, conclusions. You don't really have time or or, or we don't have the cognitive proclivity to go question it. Uh, then we believe it, then it becomes part of our identity. And then when facts come in that uh, counter what we believe, we reject the facts because we wanna maintain our identity. This is actually a really big problem with quitting is that when it becomes part of your identity, you will, you'll, you'll, you'll then uh, basically reject the facts. This is where
1: how we led to polarization. The polarization we have.
0: Right? Well, yeah, they feed, they I feed off of each other. Right. They feed off of each other. So here's an example. Let's say that you support a particular politician who is in your tribe, uh, and you've expressed support for them, and then you find out something about them that's so scandalous that had you known about it before you asserted your support for them you would not have supported that candidate now i think we all know in this day and age that not only do people continue to support them but they tend to escalate their commitment to them and how do they do it they rationalize away like oh the other side is just out to get them like never mind that that you're not disputing the facts right it's like The other side is out to get them. Here's here's one that's a way to rationalize information that you don't like, false flag, right? So we have these ways to just sort of reject that stuff so that we can cling to, to our beliefs. And particularly when those beliefs become integral to our identity, do we get in like quite a bit of danger? And part of what social media does is reinforces that identity piece because those are the proxies we're using to be able to process the information, okay? So, uh, yeah, so that's kind of what we're trying to combat over here at the Alliance for Decision. It's great. And, and, I,
1: and I have to ask you, you must know, or at least followed some of Todd Rose's work. It's very simpatico with yours. So Todd Rose did, OK, uh, um, The End of Average. He, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Former welfare father, now Harvard professor who created an organization. We've had him on in Piazza before, but his survey work most recently, the work they did where they basically asked people, do you think that this person believes X? And the person you just described who actually doubles down after finding out something, even though it would have changed their mind to begin with, actually thinks the people who think the same way are more of them than not. And yeah. so you tend to believe that certain people in your tribe all feel the same way, but then when you ask the people in your tribe, they don't, but they don't want to admit it. That's and right. And so and so, it's like, we need to pair you guys also on sort of the school tour because I don't know how any other way to get like, it's being possible. We got to get like you in front of every single educator out there. I think most of them want to do something like this. They just have no idea where to start. And they're given a program to deliver and that's where they think they need to start and end. They're not given the freedom and flexibility and, you know, the rest of it. But um, I just think it's so impressive that um, you do that. OK, so for those listening and um, if we wanted to try to help get this uh, in front of our schools, our institutions, our professional organizations, how do you go about it? Do we just read what's online? Is there some sort of training? I mean, what do we have to do? We, we, yeah, we programs?
0: have a variety of things of things that we do, you can go to the Alliance for Decision Education, our website uh, to find out about them, but we have a fellowship program. So uh, any teacher can apply for one of our fellowships. There's a healthy stipend. Um, I think we just changed the amount. So I don't want to say, cause I'm afraid yeah. I will get it wrong, but it's um, four figures. I know that it's like a healthy stipend. Sure. Um, you come and you learn uh, dis- about you know decision education, and then you create curricula and you go implement it in your school. It's a year long fellowship, uh, hopefully to share with other people. And I think that's a great way for people to get their schools involved. You can uh, tell teachers that you think might be interested um, that they can apply for that fellowship. We have we're currently developing some uh, after school programming, a forecasting contest for kids because uh, forecasting is decision making. Mm-hmm particularly thinking probabilistically, thinking about information and how that helps you to make predictions about what's gonna happen in the future. This is obviously uh, very much pulled from uh, Phil Tetlock's um, super forecasting work. Uh, He is also a member of the advisory council. So that's um, awesome. We're doing that there. We have lots of curricula that teachers can download. Uh, We have information and and, um, talking points Uh, that you can pull down. Also, if you want to start to create this kind of thing, we do partners with schools. So, I mean, there's so many different ways that you can uh, get involved if it's something that you want for a particular school that you're involved in, or if it's some way that you want to help to push it into other places. So um, please go to the website and you'll be able to, you'll be able to find all of that yummy information. We
1: will make sure that's in your bio for the episode to Annie Duke, uh, author, speaker, collaborator, only woman to have won the World Series of Poker Tournament champions, Um, friend and mom. Thank you so much for joining me in Piazza today. Really, really enjoyed it.
0: Well, thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us in Piazza. Come back throughout the month for more great conversations about advancing our human potential, how we educate our kids, acquire knowledge ourselves, and be better at work and building strong communities. You can find In Piazza wherever you get your podcasts, and follow me at Jeannie Allen on Twitter and the podcast at In Piazza Pod. Thanks for listening. Ciao.